Matthew 18, if you'll turn there, that'll be our text this morning, Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18 is about living together as fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. If you don't have that written in your Bible or you don't remember it from last week, it might be a good thing to jot down or at least store away in your memory banks. Chapter 18 is where Jesus teaches His disciples about living together in the kingdom of God. He began the chapter by teaching us that you must enter the kingdom of heaven with humility like a what? Like a little child. No one is great in the kingdom of God. You come small or you don't come at all. You enter the heaven, you enter the kingdom with humility, but today he's going to talk about caring for the little children that are in the kingdom of God, caring for other disciples. These little children or these little ones, you can see in our text, which is going to run from verses 5 to 14, if you'll look at it for a moment, you see that he makes reference to little children in verse 6, and again in verse 10, and again in verse 14. Who are these little ones? These little children, these This is a reference to all believers, to Christians. We know that because in verse 3, he had said that the only people who are in the kingdom are those who are like little children. And because in verse 6, they are explicitly described as those who believe in me, or at least those who confess faith in the Lord Jesus. This is the same way Jesus used the term back in chapter 10, verse 42, when he referred to to the prophets as little children or any righteous person, he said, as a little one in the kingdom of God. So he's going to talk about uh, taking care of little ones. And I remind you again that there are no great ones in the kingdom of heaven. No one enters the kingdom of heaven because he's deserving of it, because he's better than other people. The only people who enter the kingdom of heaven are ones who trust in the one who was good, who was great. There is only one good, and that is God. And the only one in the kingdom of heaven who opens the door to the kingdom of heaven is the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are in the kingdom of heaven not because they're good or because they're better or because they're mightier or because they're more powerful or because they're wiser than anybody else in the world. They enter the kingdom of heaven because they look to God and they say, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. They make themselves low by the grace of God and thus they are brought into the kingdom. Not only does that humility affect how we think about our relationship with God, it also affects how we think about our relationship with other people, others in the kingdom. And that's where we ended last week with verse number 5, where he says that we should receive the little children in the kingdom. We should receive one another as brothers and sisters in Christ without sinful comparison among ourselves. And in this chapter, he's going to go on and warn us about the opposite of receiving the little ones. He's going to do it in two ways. The first 
is in verse 6, if you look at it. He warns us about causing one of the little ones who believe in him to sin. And secondly, verse 10, he warns us not to despise the little ones. So here in this chapter, we're learning how to care for the little ones, that is the family of Christ, those who believe. Let's read our text together, verses 5 through 14, Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name, excuse me, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, verse 5, verse 6, but Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire." See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So what does it look like to take care of the little ones, to take care of our spiritual brothers and sisters in the kingdom? Well, it looks like receiving them, embracing them, loving them, not making ourselves great over them, but in the negative, it looks like being wary of some attitudes that we could have towards others, being wary of some ways that we could affect one another. That's part of what it means to to care for the little ones. What are the two things that the Lord Jesus warns us about? The first warning is in verses 6 through nine. And our Lord is warning His disciples against leading a Christian brother or sister astray. The first warning is against leading a Christian brother or sister astray. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, Jesus says. So that word, that little phrase, cause to sin, is translated in different ways. Some of you maybe have different translations and see it different ways. I think the King James has whoever offends one of these little ones, which um, I think may be misleading to modern ears. Our modern way of thinking of offending someone is that we make someone, what, 
just feel bad. Uh, you offended me, right? And it, this means for sure that, but, mu- but more than that. It's something more serious than that. Other translators just put it um, just literally, which means uh, the word literally means to cause to stumble, to make someone fall down. Um, so some translations have whoever uh, causes one of these little ones to stumble. And uh, though obviously this is a metaphorical stumbling, right? A spiritual stumbling. The old Holman Christian Standard Bible probably put it best, translating it this way, whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones. Its successor, the Christian Standard Bible, continues well in the same vein when it translates, whoever causes one of these little ones to fall away, to fall away from God, to to go astray is the way I'm saying it. So we're talking about something that we may do that would be the cause of some other brother or sister in Christ to go astray, to go away from God, to sin, to be disregarding of their relationship with God, in some way to draw them away from closeness with God. The word, the phrase that's translated here, um, cause one of these little ones to sin, is used of leading someone to go away from Christ and stop following Him in Matthew chapter 24 and 26. It's used of encouraging someone else to sin. Remember when Jesus uh, was confronted by Peter after telling him that he was going to sacrifice his life, and Peter said, no, no, Lord, it should never be so about you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a what? You are a hindrance to me. That's the noun form of this word. You're a cause of stumbling to me. He's tempting him, although inadvertently, yet tempting him nevertheless to sin against the will of his Father in heaven. The the phrase is used in Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 of causing a weaker Christian to sin by acting against his conscience. He believes that God demands something or God does not allow something and yet you encourage him to go ahead and violate his conscience. In other words, it's tempting another Christian to think about sin as if it's no big deal. It's no big deal. And that happens more often than you might think. It happens when people who call themselves Christians go on living in sin unrepentantly. I'm a Christian, but look how you're living. It's it's no big deal. God wants me to be happy. And what that does is that it emboldens other little ones to go on and sin too, to not care so much about their holiness, their relationship with God. And that, the Lord says, is a great and serious sin indeed. The word... The phrase is a reference to someone who sins in such a way as to bring public scandal. In fact, that's the way the the Greek word just 
has scandal in it. You translate it into English letters. It's scandal. It's someone who brings a public scandal on the name of Christ or on the integrity of the gospel while calling himself a Christian. And so brings harm to the body of Christ. Because here's, here's Jesus' point. Whenever someone sins like this, they never just affect themselves. Your sin always has an impact on those around you. Jesus is condemning or warning us against not only sinning ourselves, but doing anything that would lead a brother to sin or to go away from closeness with the Lord and sensitivity to the Lord and to His conscience and to the Word of God. There's a great warning against this. Jesus emphasizes in this text both the seriousness and the guilt of such an action. Look in verse 6, the end of the verse. He says, it would be better for this person to have a great millstone. Picture that, huge millstone that the ox turns around on its axis to crush the grain and separate the wheat from the chaff. Great millstone fastened around his neck and cast and drown into the depths of the sea. Jesus is wanting you to know this is a serious thing indeed. The most ferocious thing I can think of in the world may be a parent whose child is in danger. Right? I read an article a while back about um, a woman, in fact it was this spring, in, in, in British Columbia, up in Canada, and uh, there was a cougar, a mountain lion, you know, a puma, that actually got into their backyard and grabbed her seven-year-old son and was dragging her son off. Now, you mamas in here, you tell me where you would be. You would have superhuman strength. And she did. She screamed and ran out the door and threw herself on this wild animal. And literally, with her own hands, she pried the animal's jaws loose while she was praying out loud the entire time as she gave testimony. That's the spirit of a parent who is, uh, who is going to take care of his children. And what God is saying, what Christ is saying here is, your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're God's children. And you can be sure that God takes seriously anytime anybody harms one of God's little ones. That is no small thing. These little ones are God's children, and He will defend them. It is a serious thing to lead them astray, to turn any believer away from Christ in any way, to make any brother or sister think lightly of sin by what you do or say, by belittling someone for doing what they believe is right before God, by going on in your sin and emboldening your brothers and sisters to do likewise. Jesus says this is a serious thing indeed. And, uh, of course, when people are at war with God, they're always tempted to make excuses for their sin. Right? Have you not been there to some degree? 
People rationalize away their guilt. Jesus will not allow someone who harms a Christian to be rid of that guilt. He says, verse 7, notice what he says now. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. They are inevitable in this fallen world. But, he says, woe to the one by whom the temptations come. Temptations will come. It's necessary. But woe to the person who brings the temptation. Woe to the person who does something that deliberately tempts another Christian or a Christian, maybe a less mature Christian, to become bitter or envious or lustful or unbelieving or emboldened in sin. Woe to the Christian who sows discord among the brethren. Woe to the one who flaunts the gospel in some public way. Let none of them make excuses for sin. That's what Jesus is getting at here. There is no excuse. You, your guilt will be on you. Let no one make excuses for his sin. You remember Balaam, the story in the Old Testament? Balaam did exactly this. And Balaam, you think about how Balaam is held up even in the other the rest of the scriptures as an example of the seriousness and the guilt of this kind of thing. Balaam, a prophet who went uh, was, was hired by Israel's enemies to bring a curse upon the people and finally unable to curse them, he says, okay, here's what you do. You take the Canaanite women and introduce these unbelieving, heathen, pagan women, you introduce them to the men of Israel. And before long, well, you know what happens. They intermarry, and the hearts of the people of God are turned away from God to worship idols. What could Balaam say? I didn't do a thing. I wasn't forcing these people to do anything that they didn't want to do of their own free will. They chose these actions. They chose their wives. I didn't force them to be married. And yet Balaam is held all the way through as an example of wickedness and ungodliness because he put a stumbling block. He put a scandal in the middle of Israel. Jesus says, it is necessary that temptations come. It is necessary. Why? Because because God has ordained that the world be as it is. Right? Don't you say that? It is necessary in the unfathomable wisdom of God who ordained everything that comes to pass, who chooses to use a fallen world to bring himself glory, and even uses every temptation that comes to pass for his own eternally good purposes. And yet, at the same time, he says, woe to those who are the immediate cause of the temptation. 
And I can't think of a better example of this than the example that the Word of God holds up in the Gospel of Matthew here and in other Gospels of Judas. Judas Iscariot, whose betrayal of Jesus did not take God by surprise, was the outworking of the plan of God in the broadest, most overarching sense. It was ordained by God. Go so far as to say that. And yet, for God to say, for the Lord to say about Judas, it would be better for him that he had never been born. His guilt is not off of him because God is sovereign over all things. Jesus is a compatibilist here. (laughs) He believes that God's absolute sovereignty over all things is is not incompatible with our responsibility and our guilt for the things that we do to one another. So he puts it to them that there is no escaping simply by saying, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. But when we hurt one another, when we hurt other brothers and sisters in Christ, we sin against God and our guilt is on us. The encouraging thing is that God is able to use even our afflictions and our temptations and our struggles and even our falls for our ultimate good. But woe to us if we run toward our sin. Let no one excuse himself. Hear me now. Let no Christian ever say, a Christian, a person who names the name of Christ, who who yet is going on in his sin, let no one ever say, well, God is sovereign. When he wants me to repent, he'll make me repent. Oh, let us be fearful of sinning against the mercies and the patience of God. Jesus will not alleviate us of our guilt. We are responsible for what we do, not only before God, but what we do in its effect on God's people. When you think about the effects of your actions on your wife or your husband or your children, for your brothers and sisters in Christ here in this church, or your testimony to the brothers and sisters in the broader body of Christ. Jesus says, beware of doing anything that would lead a brother or sister astray. That is a serious thing indeed. Now, if one of us, if someone from our midst were to begin to act this way, to go on in their sin, potentially emboldening other people, or to cause harm to some other little one in the body of Christ, then Jesus says we have a responsibility toward that person. Did you know that? Look at it in verse 8. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better to enter cripple or lame than to be thrown into hell. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin, throw it away. It's better to you to go through life with one eye than to be cast into hell. Now, let me stop here and make a clarification. There's two ways to take this, I think. Um, This reference to the body and all the different body parts, right? Eyes and hands and feet. 
You could take it as a reference to your individual body, or you could take it as a reference to the body of Christ, corporately. And somebody, if somebody argues, well, that's too metaphorical here, um, you need to take body literally. I do wonder that not too many of those people are blind because they've plucked out their eyes. There's something metaphorical being said. It's either a reference to radically removing from your life those things that taint you individually or removing those things that taint the, the body of Christ corporately. Most likely, Matthew sees the imagery that Jesus uses on probably more than one occasion as flexible enough to encompass both personal discipline, personal spiritual discipline, as well as church discipline. And I realize in this context, it's a little bit awkward to speak of people corporately being cast into hell, but remember that 2 John Verse 11 says that whoever supports and encourages false teachers is literally, quote, a partaker in their evil works. And if somebody continues on doing that, then they are rightly cast into hell. So I think there are two good arguments for taking verses 8 through 9 as a reference to church discipline here rather than personal spiritual discipline. Discipline, And the two good arguments are the context and the context. The preceding context and the following context. The preceding context being verse number 6, where it is a person who causes someone to sin. And verse 8 now, it is the imagery of a body part that causes someone to sin. Therefore, Body part, verse 8, equals contextually person. It is a body of people, I think, in mind here. The other aspect is the following context. And if you follow down to verse 15 and following, 15 to 20, you'll see that that is, in fact, where Jesus is going. Verses 15 to 20 are one of the most central and important passages on church discipline in the Scriptures. So, for that reason, I think what's happening here is that Jesus is saying, listen, if there is someone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, who goes on intentionally living in unrepentant sin, if, or if they're bringing open shame, scandal, on the name of Christ all while claiming the name of Christ, if they're undermining the, the integrity of the gospel in front of the rest of the little ones, then they must be removed from the body. You cut off the hand, you cut off the foot, you pluck out the eye. In other words, Jesus, Jesus is getting at is that... Um, uh, Reproof as a church, reproof of a sinning brother or sister, um, admonishing, even disciplining as a church, should not be looked at or thought of as an unloving thing. It is the very way that we love the congregation of the little ones. So that no, no act 
belittles the gospel before us, that nothing would embolden any of us to go on in our own sin. Now that's the first warning. Beware of leading another little one, a brother or sister, away from Christ. It's a serious thing indeed. The Lord tells us how to deal with it. And he's going to unpack that more as we continue to go. But now here's the second warning. With regard to caring for the little ones, what does that not look like? Or what does that look like in the negative? Second warning is this. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Do not despise the little ones. First, don't lead them astray. Secondly, don't despise them. To despise someone is to think little of them. Which goes against the whole grain of this passage because we're all little ones. Right? This is the way he keeps talking to us. But it's to think little of someone. It could be used in the sense of being dismissive of someone. Writing them off, in that sense, it's used in Romans chapter 2 when Paul says that we should not think lightly, is the same way it's translated there. Don't think lightly of the kindness of God, which is meant to lead you to repentance, but you're taking advantage of it. Don't take advantage, don't think lightly, don't be dismissive of Christian brothers and sisters. Don't despise them, don't make nothing of them. Don't just let them go and and not care for them. It can also be used in a stronger sense of being actually antagonistic toward some person. And this is the way it's used in 2 Peter chapter 2 when false teachers, quote, despise or hate true apostolic authority. They hate it. They're they're despising of it. And so this kind of dismissive attitude of, of other Christians can become even an embittered attitude towards others. Jesus is saying, beware, don't despise the brothers. Beware of an attitude that is easily dismissive of or bitter or resentful against some brother, perhaps a weaker brother or sister who's being led astray into sin. Because that's the context here. We'll see it. He keeps going with it. Beware of despising your brothers and sisters generally, but I think in this context especially, beware of despising your brother or sister who's being tempted to go into sin. And there are two reasons Jesus gives why we should not despise, but rather to keep loving them, to keep rebuking and exhorting them, to keep praying for them and pleading with them that they would return to the Lord. Two reasons. One, maybe unexpected. Look at verse 10. Here's the first reason. The first reason is on account of the angels. Bet you didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> on account of the angels, don't despise them because their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So first of all, I suppose we have to remind ourselves of the reality of the spirit world and the angelic host. We live in a world that only gives credence to what we can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. Um, 
a world full of spiritual unbelief. And so we as Christians have to stand on what God reveals that is far beyond our senses most of the time. Angels. I haven't preached much on angels. Um, And that's okay, in a sense, because angels serve not for their own glory, but for the glory of the Son of God, for God in heaven. But the Lord does use His angels, His mighty, all-powerful, not all-powerful, excuse me, but very powerful spirit beings to accomplish His purposes and to, to represent His people. Um, So, for example, Daniel chapters 10 and 12, angels represent various nations on the face of the earth. Interesting, isn't it? Revelation chapter 1, angels apparently are assigned to watch over individual churches, to the angel of the church of Thessalonica, and so forth. Um, Whether this text is enough to prove that each individual Christian has his own individual guardian angel, I'm not real sure. But we do know, more generally, that God does send His angels, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, as ministering spirits for the good of His people, to do God's bidding and watching over us. God does that. The angel and camps around those who fear the Lord, Psalm 34, verse 7. We can be visited by angels, even unawares, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 1. And angels represent the people of God before the throne of heaven. So Jesus is saying here, isn't it? Their angels always stand before God in heaven. Say, which one's mine? They're all mine, by the grace of God. God calls the host of heaven for the sake of His people. And they represent Him before God as a what? As a sort of constant reminder before the holy throne of heaven that His people are before Him so that he never forgets his little ones, even when they're tempted to go astray. But we are always before the Lord through our angels. And so, Jesus says, don't despise one of these little ones. Their representatives are standing in front of the throne of heaven. You love them, you pray for them, you warn them, you exhort them, you chasten them, you be patient with them. For the sake of the angels. And secondly, on account of the resolve of God to keep His own. On the account of the determination of God to keep His own. This is verses 12, 13, and 14. Now they're... I do have to pause and say there is a verse 11 in some translations. If you're using the ESV, it's not there. It reads this way. The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. 
And the reason that it's not there, or the reason that it is there in some Bibles and it's not there in others, is that that sentence is found in a lot of the ancient Greek manuscripts from which we make our translations. And it's not found in some of the oldest ones. One thing we know for certain is that it's not a conspiracy to remove this truth from your Bible. Or at least if so, it is the worst conspiracy in the world because they messed up in Luke chapter 19 verse 10 where it is recorded in all Bible translations. (laughs) But whether or not God originally inspired that wording here in this text, the idea is certainly present in the parable that Jesus tells next. Look at that little story. Remember this, Jesus says, picture the shepherd out on the fields. So much easier for them to picture than for us, I'm sure. But picture the, the shepherd up in the mountains, the rugged mountains of Judea, and there he has his little flock of a, of a hundred or so sheep, a hundred sheep he has, and he brings them up at the end of the evening toward the, uh, the sheepfold, and they, they gather around, and, and he begins to send them into the sheepfold, and he's counting them, 89, 89, 90, 99, 99, and the 100 is not there. There's 99. One is missing. What should the shepherd do? He might say to himself, well, it's just one. One sheep out of a hundred? Will that kill me? No, he secures those 99 and he goes off and he seeks out the one that was lost, the one that wandered away. He pursues that one until he finds it. And when he finds it, he is filled with great joy. And the truth is, that one is every single one of us. For all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Every single Christian, in in a big or a small or some variety of a way, has been tempted and has wandered away from his God. What hope is there for any of us? And the answer is, our hope is then the one who seeks the lost, who will not rest content when there is one missing, one that really belongs to him. He will seek him to the ends of the earth. He will spare no expense until he hunts him down. He is resolved to keep all who belong to him. So Jesus says it very strongly in verse 14. It is the will of my Father that not one of these little ones should perish. If that person is truly a child of God, then God determines to keep that child. And that means pursuing him when he goes astray. And who of us has not known the pursuing grace of God that hunted us down, picked us up, bound our wounds, and poured on the ointment of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the gospel, and put us on His shoulders and brought us back and restored us to what we ought to be. 
How many times have you experienced that? In small ways, hopefully only small ways, but, but in everyone, they're, they're big ways because apart from the mercy of merciful shepherd, we would be still lost. Amen? The Lord is a God who pursues His own. That's the reason He has a flock, because He pursues them with mercy. Thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel chapter 34, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have gone astray, that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will gather them from all places where they have been scattered on the mountains in the days of clouds and thick darkness. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Then he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will be able to pluck them out of my hand. And my Father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. It is because of the faithful determination of God to keep His own that there is hope for those little ones. So don't despise them. Don't write them off. Don't dismiss them. Pursue them with hope and mercy and patience and grace and long-suffering and prayer. This is the way we care for the little ones. Love your fellow believers. Receive one another and take care of the children of God. They're His little ones. Be a good big brother, a good big sister. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. The Lord working through you to encourage one another to love and to good works is His means of keeping you in, keeping them and you in the faith. Call them. Get together with them for lunch. Pray with them. Pray, pray, pray for them. Seek them. Protect the little ones. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Admonish the wayward. Admonish the wayward. Encourage the fainting. Strengthen the weak. Guard your family. Jesus says care. Care for the little ones. Care for them. Let's pray and submit ourselves to Him. Lord, we do. Lord Jesus, we hear what You're saying. And you know that it is our earnest desire to obey it, to love and care for the flock in which you've placed us. So please grant us the faith and the patience and the love and the courage and the truth to speak, to do what we may speak and do 
to guard this little flock, to guard the body of Christ. Keep it clean and holy. Father, we know that You will take care of Your flock. Please do it through us, we ask in Jesus' name.